Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. We're picking up in our series, Jesus Changes Everything, in John chapter 7. For the next two weeks, we're going to be sweeping twice through this chapter and the one that follows. Twice through this chapter and the one that follows, considering them together, and that's going to take two weeks mainly because I want to spend a part of our time today doing something a little different. I want to I spend some of our time today just explaining why we're even attempting to do that. You know, I've heard now from a number of people that, that this has been helpful in a sense, uh, taking this gospel in larger chunks, but also at the same time that it has been at times somewhat challenging. And not least because some of those favorite verses of ours that show up, they show up so quickly and then pass by so quickly that you don't even have time to digest sometimes. And so I just want to explain, I want to take a moment to reflect on why we're doing what we're doing. It's not a haphazard decision. It's not the only way to do it, but it's not a haphazard decision either. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word is rich. When we take it in such large chunks, we risk drowning in the sheer depth of it. And yet there's a benefit to seeing it in that, those large sweeps, and I pray that today we would see that. And so I ask, even as we consider the, the largest chunk of this gospel that we've yet grappled with, that, that we would see it for what it is, a, a single story at, about a single celebration to which your son showed up to make the statement that he is our single savior. As we fall in love with him for who he was and, and what he's done on our behalf, I pray that we would be stripped of all love for all things apart from him. And at the same time, I pray that we would learn to love because of him. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't noticed, we've been working through this gospel at a fair pace, which has necessitated our taking it in rather large chunks. It's just a given of what we've been doing. And today, that's more evident than ever, as we have two chapters to work through, what amounts to a hundred verses after you take out the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, that's Sounds odd a little bit, and I know that's, it's an account, um, but though, that wasn't originally in this gospel when it was first published. It's the, the only of its kind on this scale. You can read it, the footnotes in your, your own Bible. I'm sure they're there, unless you're reading from a King James Version, then they might not be. They should be, but they might not be. This is an account that wasn't originally in the gospel, the only of its kind of this scale, and no doubt beloved by the early church, no doubt apostolic, going back to Jesus himself. It's just it was floating around, and, and the early church couldn't decide where to put it, so they put it in the middle of this account in John 7 and 8. 
And if we're going to understand the story as it fits together, we've got to take it out. It illustrates a point which, if you know the story already, Jesus declares within this story um, who he is, and it illustrates a point alongside of that. But it's just better if we just take it out because it interrupts John's, John's narrative. and We don't want that. Yet, even after we take those verses out, we're still left with a pretty hefty passage to wade through so that you might even wonder, what's the use in doing it? If I can't digest the details, why even try? Because after all, this is God's word, and we ought to give it the attention it deserves. Something maybe skittering through your brain like that. And with that question in mind, I want to start today by giving you three reasons why it's worth working through this gospel in larger chunks. Which isn't just about us working through the gospel of John, but I hope will even help you in your own personal studies of books like this. Specifically narrative, but books even beyond that. Books of of prophecy, prophetic books. the, 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 The wisdom literature even falls into this camp often. Not Proverbs so easily, but but the other wisdom literature, the other narratives of the Bible especially. So I hope this will help um, and at least clarify for you why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because there's benefit to it. Well, reason one is that taking God's, taking the gospel in larger chunks, helps us keep the main idea and main intent of the entire book in view. You can do that if you dive into the details, but often if we get caught in the weeds, we're more likely to lose focus of the forest. When in fact, this book was meant to tell a, a single story with a single purpose, so that every piece of the puzzle fits together to produce a single picture. This book is about, if you're wondering, you can remember back to what we talked on in the first, the first sermon of this series. This book is about God's son who offers God's enemies the right to become God's children if they trust in God's Savior, if they trust in Jesus as God's Savior. Or like it says at the end of the gospel, that these things were written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. This gospel is all about finding life as the children of God through faith in the Son of God. It's one story. But if we get caught in the weeds, we're more likely to lose focus of the forest, when in fact the main idea and main intent is meant to bleed through every part of this book. Many of you know that I've um, served in a number of different uh, contexts now, in a number of different continents even. But always within this side of Christianity that holds the Bible in the highest esteem. Yet because of that very esteem, I've seen both overseas and over here a tendency to treat this gospel or other parts of the Bible more like a collection of sayings than as a story. Sometimes even worse, as a collection of spells. 
As if, as if the magic is in, in, in the words themselves and, and the way you recite them, rather than in the story they tell, the picture they paint, the argument they make even. And that goes much farther than just this gospel. So one friend of mine, pastoring even a very influential church uh, stateside, began preaching through one of Paul's letters. And he got so wrapped up in the details that one chapter took him 27 Sundays to complete. At the end of which, a man in the, in the congregation approached him, approached him and said, man, I thought this was pretty clear before, but I, at least I'm glad that you know what you're talking about. Which was sort of this backhanded compliment that was actually an indictment that the guy had gotten so caught up in the details that he had lost sight of the whole. These things were made to be, to be read, but, but not in that way often. And, and if we get too caught up in the details, we actually start, start scripturizing the parts rather than the whole. And we undo it in a way. You could do it either way. You can, you can do that. You can focus in on the, on the details to that level, and you can do it right. But, but at least for me, working through this gospel in larger chunks or, or other books like it helps me keep the main idea and the main intent of this book in view. Not disregarding the details, but understanding them with their respective contexts within those. It helps us see these books as they were given to us, as books. Okay, reason two. Taking larger chunks also allows the story to unfold at a natural pace. So when these things were first written, they were meant to be read in a single setting. That's why they're all about the same size. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, even Acts. They're all roughly the, the length of a scroll or a half scroll because that was about as much as you could take sitting down listening to one of these. So this is what you did in the ancient world when you, when you became a Christian. You, you gave up going to the movies on Friday night. For them, it was the theater. And instead, you'd gather together and whoever had the biggest house with the most money who could get hold of one of these books, and you'd sit there for about two hours as someone performed them. And that was your night. That was your entertainment. So if you're new to the faith or you're wondering, you're outside of the faith and you're wondering, what am I going to do if I ever get into the faith? That's what they used to do. They used to sit around and listen to these things full scope from beginning to end. And that's what they were, that's what they were created for. Now for us today, we have enough cultural distance between us and these accounts that they need some explaining. So if we're really going to hear them as they were meant to be heard, we can't really work through an entire book in a single setting in any detail, unless we're going to raise the salaries of the Sunday school teachers and get more comfortable seats. But, but we can at least keep um, up the story, not only to keep the book's main idea, main intent in view, but also to allow the story to unfold at a natural pace. Now, Catherine, the kids um, have been gone this week visiting her parents in Ohio. They're all sick, by the way. I was telling people I'm on this little island of health and, and, and loving every minute of it. 
But they're, they're away, so it's allowed me to get caught up on a few things. One was picking up a novel that I've been, been meaning to, to finish that I started something like four years ago. So I go to the shelf, I pick up this novel that I'm not really a novel reader, but this one was on a list that I, that I felt like I needed to get through. Pick up a novel, flip it open to where the bookmark is, and it's in the middle of a chapter. So I had to read back a little bit just to refresh what was happening and then read forward only to find out that for four years I had this misunderstanding of one of the main characters thinking he was the hero when all he turned out to be was a hack. Because it shouldn't have stopped in the middle of the chapter. Now, the Bible, the chapters are not always where the dividing line is. We see that today, actually. But this is more important than that. Even more so for this gospel that was written to be read straight through. There's merit in figuring out where an account begins and ends so that the story unfolds at a natural pace. If you slow down too much in the midst of this gospel, you risk misunderstanding or misinterpreting something. John sets up at the front end of these, of one of these accounts, and then undoes actually on the back end. So even in in part of the story, we're not going to touch today really, but even in the story today on the front end of John chapter 7, we're told that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Chapter 7 actually begins with them ridiculing him for not wanting to go up to Jerusalem for what we'll see was the Feast of Booths. His, his hesitation there was because he was, he, people were out to get him. It's understandable. I wouldn't have gone either. So Jesus doesn't go. His brothers don't even believe in him. But when he does show up to Jerusalem, we find it's more of a mixed bag. Not everybody is not believing in him. In fact, when he starts Um, teaching and preaching soon after that some are actually saying could this be the christ and by verse 31 it actually says that some many believed in him and and if you slip into chapter 8 that that even more did after jesus says when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that i am he now those are two different pictures jesus being rejected by his his own brothers And Jesus finally being recognized for who he was. But the contrast only emerges if you take the two together. Yet even here we shouldn't draw any conclusions about those beginning to believe in Jesus because these are the ones he actually addresses next. Who by the time he's finished with them, at the end of chapter 8, when this feast that this, this passage is all about, It's finally coming to a close. They're the ones picking up stones to kill him. But you don't see it. You don't see it if you just drop the story halfway through. We would have made them the heroes, these ones who are finally believing in Jesus, but they they turn out to be the hacks because once again in this gospel, people are believing in Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And we only know that if we allow the story to unfold at a natural pace. Because John tells this story in circles. You ever notice that? You ever notice that? Come on, reading this gospel? 
He tells this gospel in circles. He'll lay something down on the table, but he's not meaning for you to dwell on it then. He's going to pick it up later. And if you pick it up too soon, you undo what he's going to do with it later. The details mount in this story because they're meant to crash over the audience only at their crest. And so you have to let them lie or you're in danger of either making too much of them to begin with or then later when they do crash, making too little of them. But there's a third reason it's worth taking this gospel in larger chunks. And this is where I want to land a little bit today. It's because it actually brings out better the beauty of the details we love so much. And we've already seen this some in previous weeks. Jesus' injunction back in chapter 3, that to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. As beautiful as that imagery is, it really makes sense only when he explains it as being born from water and spirit two verses later. And the two ought to be read together because this new birth is about being cleansed with something better than H2O and then being made alive by the spirit of life. Yet even this begs the question that that Nicodemus puts on the table, how can these things be? So you can't just stop there because Jesus is about to answer it when he picks that question up and and says these things can be because the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, it says, that, that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Even there, as a statement, for God so loved the world, is an amazing thing. But if it's also the key to being born again, it's all the more so. Even after this, though, the story goes on. Because it's actually about a picture of belief. Nicodemus' failure to believe, the one in conversation with Jesus... And then the foil to that given in John the Baptist when he says, I must decrease, he must increase. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. To pedestal him on your life, above your life. So that belief is the key to eternal life, which is the key to being born again. Now, I know some are theologically aware enough to understand there's questions in the order there. But that's the order in this passage. And the beauty of it hangs together when you see it as a whole. Keeping up the pace actually brings out better the beauty of the details. Because this isn't like going into a mine and trying to find gems. Emmett asked me this week if he could buy a pickaxe. He's planning on starting a mining business with two of his compadres. This is not that. The Bible is not something where you go in search of the gems. 
It's where you find the gems already set in their crown of gold. And to see them that way actually brings out the beauty more. And this is the point I want to emphasize today. With two statements Jesus makes, one in chapter 7 and the other in chapter 8. Because we're going to sweep through these two chapters again next week. I'm going to take the liberty of focusing on just these two statements to see how they're even more beautiful in the context of these chapters and up against one another. More beautiful than they may at first appear. So let me remind you that these chapters are set during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. We're told that in in chapter 7, verse 2. This is the culmination of the Jews' festal year. They were a people of feasts, and this was the top. If you read back in Leviticus 23, this is the feast that that would have capped all the rest off. And we've already seen that that these accounts in John 5 and 6 and now 7 and 8 are framed by feasts. It's not a mistake that Jesus shows up. And he shows up at these feasts, not just to participate in the festivities, but to make a statement, always a statement. So the question from the beginning is, what is the statement he's going to make? Feast of Booths was the high point of the Jewish calendar, an entire week set apart after the last harvest of the grapes and the olives. Seven days in which the people of Israel would set up temporary shelters, either out in their fields or or on their roofs, to rest from the work of the harvest and to remember that for their people, for the people of Israel, it had not always been so. There was a time past that their ancestors lived in booths or tabernacles, temporary dwellings like this for 40 years in the wilderness without land or harvest. But even when God had provided, and now God had provided, even then God had provided, and now God provided that people with a land of their own. And they were to remember. So every year they celebrated. Let me read a description of the feast. One Man says, a a Jew actually, describes it this way. Jerusalem must have been magnificent during that month. Each festival was more spectacular than the last, but the cycle reached its high point during the celebration of booths. The Jewish people were not required to go up to Jerusalem for trumpets or, or the Day of Atonement. These are two other feasts. But they were required to do so for booths. Jerusalem could not possibly have held the number of these temporary shelters needed to house them all. More animals would be sacrificed during this feast than at any other time in the Jewish year. And the city was more crowded during this holiday than any other. And it was a feast of joy. We're told in John 7 that that Jesus didn't go up to the feast immediately. and, And when he did, he went up in secret. We'll look at that more next week. Beginning to teach in public only during the middle of the feast. But the first of these two remarkable statements that Jesus makes wasn't made until the last day when this high feast was at its height. 
During this feast, there was a ceremony called the Ceremony of the Water, in which a priest would parade from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, leading a, a processional in his wake. You can think Super Bowl parade or, or World Series parade down Michigan Avenue. Or for me, growing up, it was, it was um, in lower Manhattan when the Yankees were, were in their heyday. There was a priest um, who would go in procession, lead this procession down to the pool of Siloam, and when he got there, he would, he would fill a golden pitcher to the brim and return to the temple, all dancing behind him, playing their instruments behind him, singing and shouting for joy behind him. And he'd go over to the altar and, and pour this pitcher over it. The water, again, a remembrance of God providing for his people in the wilderness. But also now, symbolizing the rain that was so much an essential part of their day-to-day lives. Everyone shouting, particularly from Psalm 118, Lord, send prosperity. But also the water was symbolizing that day that God would pour out not only the rain, but also his spirit. Their own prophets talked of the day. And so at there, at, at the height of this celebration, at this ceremony, they would be shouting at the top of their lungs, save us now, Lord, save us now, save us now, seven times over, Hosheana, Hosheana, Hosheana. Which is when, if you look at chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's a beautiful statement. Out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. Even if you don't believe in this stuff, that's a, that's a beautiful statement. But in the context of that feast is more beautiful still. That, that Jesus was saying, I'm it. I'm it. It's about me. Not just your hope of Sabbath rest from chapter 5. Or, or Passover satisfaction from chapter 6. But that I'm the one who will pour out the presence of God as hoped for in the Feast of Booths. That you once dwelt in booths in the wilderness crowded around that tent of God only to move into this land and then lose God for walking away from him. But I'm the one who's bringing him back. Can you imagine a man standing up in the midst of your ceremony and saying, I'm the one who's going to do it? It's a beautiful statement. In context, more beautiful still, but there's a deeper beauty yet 
Because Jesus' statement here is developed in one he makes a little later that same night. Again, if you remove this story of the woman caught in adultery, which breaks up the narrative, it puts it a day later, but it's not supposed to be. Because alongside the ceremony of the water was another that took place in that temple. During the Feast of Booths, four pillars, 75 feet high, were lit with torches in the temple courts. Four, four ladders placed against each side. Young, young priests would, would climb the ladders, 10 gallons full of oil each, and, and pouring it out into these torches and light them up. symbolizing the pillar of fire that had led this people through the wilderness so long ago. And later, settled that pillar of fire that settled in that temple, even if it had since been lost. And tradition says that from the light of these pillars, not a courtyard in Jerusalem was not lit up by their flames. And on that last night, the Jews would celebrate into the wee hours of the morning until two priests would lead those gathered to the western end of the temple courts. They'd go to a gate called Beautiful, and as the dawn approached, rising in the east, As the dawn approached and the light of those pillars met the light of the rising sun, the worshipers would turn their backs on the one and face again the other, the temple. And they would recite together this ancient prayer. They would say, Our ancestors, when they were in this place, turned with their backs unto the temple and their faces toward the east, and they prostrated themselves eastward toward the sun. But as for us, our eyes are turned to the eternal. At which you could imagine stepping in between them and their pillars that symbolized this eternal Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine the looks on their faces? Can you imagine? I mean, he's already ruined their ceremony of the water. Can you imagine this guy? When all else are proceeding east, turning back, looking west, backs to the sun, looking at the pillar, and this man barely lit, 75-foot pillars on either side of him, this man comes out and says again, I'm it. It's all about me. Now he ruined their festival of lights as well. 
Because as much as Jesus claimed to pour out God's presence for God's people, he here claims to do so as the present God. And the two statements are to be read together through the single lens of that feast. His strongest self-affirmation to date in this gospel that he was indeed God made flesh. That he doesn't only heal people like God or provide for people like God or protect people like God, but shows up as God. That all that stuff about the Word that had life and and that life was the light of men and that light was coming into the world, that, that the Word would dwell among them, tabernacle among them, make a booth among them. It's the same Word. It's the only other time it's used in the Gospel. This is what that feast was all about. Jesus is what that feast is all about. but you only see it if you read it together. You only see the significance. Here, the the, the penny drop, the mic drop, if you read it together. That the Jews were celebrating Jesus, and whether they knew it or not, longing again for him. The present God who pours out the presence of God. Next week we're going to see that as much as these chapters as well are framed by this feast and these two statements sort of hover above the, the chaos and confusion of what's going on around them. Next week we're going to see that actually these two chapters are more about the chaos, more about the confusion than about what Jesus is saying. He's saying it, it's no surprise. But the surprise is the reaction on the other end. We'll get into that next week, but let me give you a few takeaways. First, let me encourage you, let me just encourage you again, to continue to hone your skills as a reader. I know that doesn't sound appetizing to some, but we've been given a book. And if we want to know God, we've got to learn how to read God's book. In our circles, we've gotten rather good recently at reciting the big story of the Bible. That's really helpful to know that this started with creation, a a thing that was good, that, that we made it all wrong, it went bad, and that God endeavored to make it right again. That culminated in Jesus and someday will be finalized when he returns again. It's a good thing that we know the storyline of the Bible, and we're getting better at telling that story all the time. And as those who who have held the Bible in such high esteem, we've always had an eye for the details. But I think this is an area we can work on, seeing how a particular author uses particular details to unfold a particular side of that story. And one of the skills, just to throw one out there, that helps in this regard is simply developing our ability to ask good questions. What's the point the author is trying to make? How does he develop it, develop it from one section to the next? Why did he say it like that? 
rather than this? And, and, and how does this all fit together? Where does it start and where does it end? This one point that moves his story forward. Asking good questions. Like a good director, the authors of the Bible don't usually let anything into the frame that doesn't somehow drive the story forward. But our job is to figure out how the details drive the story forward. Not to find the details and make like that's the story. Second, let me encourage you with regard to this passage to to recognize the implications of Jesus being the present God who pours out the presence of God. For the Jews, both when they wandered in the wilderness, then when they took up residence in the promised land, as present as God was, he was never present without qualification. He was always in the tent, in the temple. A holy God shut up away from an unholy people. But in Jesus... This God comes and pitches his tent among us. And then, because of his death on the cross, pours out his spirit into us. After Jesus is glorified, of course, which is on the cross. So we ought to recognize the high price that has been paid for that presence. Made available to us before we were behaving. That we belonged before we behaved. Which ought to change how we look at ourselves and how we look at those around us. There's implications there. We belonged before we behaved. And what a high price it took. But lastly, we ought to recognize that the presence of God poured into our lives by the present God is a presence of light. I am the the light of the world. So that those who follow Jesus, it says, might never walk in darkness again. It's the strongest possible way in Jesus' language to say that even though we belong before we behave, we belong in order that we might behave. That we would live God's way, not our own way. Because Jesus is the light. So if you're finding yourself not behaving, I'm not talking particularly about temptation here. Everyone faces temptation. I'm talking about those who give in to it. I'm talking about those who who wander off or are wandering off or are wading into darkness or or who are wading in the shadows, whether that's stoking up a fantasy love relationship on Facebook or, or, or cutting corners with your taxes or, or dressing up like a ninja and doing whatever ninjas do in the dark of night. You've got to ask yourself, if you're following this light, supposedly following this light, if you're actually doing that anymore or had been doing it in the first place. And if you're doing it any more than those Jews were when Jesus got between them and their pillars of fire and said, I'm it. Because those are the ones who try to stone him in the end. If you're in the darkness, which I can't imagine there aren't 
of many of us in the darkness, the secrets of life. You risk losing everything if you stay there. You think to come out, you might lose your marriage, you might lose your reputation, you might lose your, your, your job, you might lose your bank account. If you come out of the darkness, when the irony is if you stay there, in God's good irony, you will probably end up losing your marriage. You will probably end up losing your job, your account, whatever it is. So this is an invitation when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, to decide whether you want to walk in the light or whether you're going to hold on to darkness. And I'd sorely encourage the former. Let me pray. God, we don't deserve your presence. We don't even know at this stage all the implications of that. We haven't heard it yet. Jesus will get there. But one way or another, we don't deserve it. In all honesty, we ought to be frightened to death of it. Because that's what your presence demands. Yet dearly we've been bought, highly esteemed, redeemed, with Jesus' blood redeemed. And I pray that we would cling to the light because of it, stripped of the darkness. This may not be the time, but if you're living in the darkness, I wouldn't mind talking to you mostly because I've been there. I've been there recently because that's where we stumble back. And if you need an ear, mine's available to you. For the rest of us, I pray we'd go now knowing the light of this world, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.